Welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor Podcast. I'm Joel Swider, a healthcare real estate attorney with Hall Render. And for today's episode, we're going to listen in on a webinar put on by my colleague Mark Adams and I on property tax exemption for nonprofit healthcare providers. Well, good afternoon uh, or good morning, depending on where you are, and welcome to today's Hall Render teleconference. Uh, this session is designed to be a kind of a bite-sized 30-minute lunch and learn presentation, uh, or if you're on the West Coast, maybe you, you can listen over coffee, um, which we will also make this presentation available afterward on our website in a podcast format. Um, if you have any questions during today's session, feel free to submit them through the Q&A chat box on the WebEx. Uh, and we will do our best to answer those uh, if we have time, and if not, we will uh, reach out to you to, uh, to get those questions answered. We're going to provide a little bit of the legal framework today for property tax exemptions for healthcare entities, uh, but rather than a deep dive into the legal requirements and the regulatory history of the taxation of healthcare property, our main goal today is to provide you with practical tips that you can use either when applying for a property tax exemption uh, or in the event that a property tax exemption is denied and it needs to be appealed. Uh, without further ado, I'm Joel Swider. I'm a healthcare real estate lawyer in the Indianapolis office of Hall Render. And as you know, Hall Render has nine offices from, from coast to coast, really. Um, we have a number of attorneys who practice full-time in our real estate group and a variety of others uh, throughout the country who provide consultation on state law issues. Um, and I'm joined today by Mark Adams. Mark, could you introduce yourself? Thank you, Joel. Mark Adams here. <clears throat> I've been a practicing attorney for 26 years. Uh, working in the business, tax, uh, commercial transactions, and real estate areas, primarily for nonprofits, but I also represent some for-profit entities. Before I became a lawyer, I worked at eight years in the CPA field for a large international accounting firm. And uh, happy to be here today to talk to you about property tax exemptions. Thanks, Mark. Um, so. Over your, your time, uh, you know, doing this since 1992, um, just as a general kind of overview for today's session, what have you seen? I mean, what has been kind of the evolution? Yes. Well, well, first I'd like to say that this seminar is tailored for the tax-exempt taxpayer, but if someone from a municipality is listening, uh, they can also benefit. But Hall Vendor generally represents the taxpayer. And I've been doing property tax appeals since 1992, uh, two types of appeals, uh, the valuation type appeal where we are arguing over the fair market value of the property, that's fairly easy. You know, you maybe are hiring a professional appraiser to look at the property uh, and then you argue over what's it really worth? How do, you, how do we compromise that? Uh, but the one we're going to talk about today is whether or not the taxpayer is entitled to an exemption at all. And uh, the, the uh, tax exempt valuation appeals are much more challenging. Back when I started doing this in 1990, I think I did my first property tax appeal in 1992, uh, if a tax-exempt nonprofit institution would just simply produce their, their determination letter from the IRS, that was kind of the end of the discussion. The township or the city would be bound to grant you a full property tax uh, exemption on your real estate and the personal property located in there. But the evolution has been, particularly in later years, <clears throat> it's much more difficult. The townships and cities are challenging tax exemptions um, very vigorously, uh, and, uh, because, and basically it's because of funds. Uh, funds are tight, municipalities are uh, in tough spot financially, and they just don't um, believe they can afford to continue with this process of granting large 
tax exemptions for tax exempt entities. Thanks, Mark. So, I guess by way of background, um, the impetus or part of the impetus for today's session was an article that you wrote, Mark, in Taxation of Exempts, uh, which is a publication of Thomson Reuters. Um, and for those on the call who, who haven't seen that or, or haven't had a chance to read it, is, is that available to, to listeners? Yes. Uh, our copyright agreement with Thomson Reuters doesn't permit us to post it online on our website, but I, if you send me an email or you're listed as a participant in this, uh, we will promptly email you a full copy of the article. We're allowed to do that. Great. Great. Um, so by way of background, I mean, we kind of we look at, uh, at what, what is at stake, Mark? And you mentioned, you know, it's, that these have become much more contentious now. Um, and, and, and as I look at kind of the financial impact of nonprofits on municipalities, I see it as a little bit of a double-edged sword. Um, on the one hand, there's great financial benefit to a city or a municipality in attracting a hospital or a healthcare system or other large nonprofit, um, just in terms of employment, in terms of sales tax on, on consumption that's brought to the area. It's better for the, the economy as a whole. Um, but on the other hand, the more nonprofit and charitable entities that come to a municipality, um, the less property tax revenue that that municipality is going to be able to collect. And in many cases, that tax revenue may be the only or one of the only sources of revenue uh, for the municipality. Um, would you agree, Mark, that the stakes are in, in some ways getting higher, especially as, as we see kind of financial I wouldn't say, um, you know, they're not being the best stewards of their money, but we do see some states and cities that are in financial straits. Sure. I mean, it, here we're close to the city of Detroit, which underwent a full-blown uh, full bankruptcy a few years ago. And time and time again, when we negotiate property tax exemptions with municipalities, we hear from the township or city officials, we just can't afford to continue to do this. Your tax-exempt entity um, is imposing a drain on our resources and you should pay some kind of tax. So I'm going to provide a little bit of background. Um, we, we at Hall Render have been tracking property tax exemption uh, challenges for hospitals and healthcare facilities in at least 10 states, uh, Illinois, New Jersey, of course, the, being kind of the big ones, Pennsylvania, Maine, Connecticut, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Montana, and Massachusetts. So it's really all over the country that we've been seeing this sort of uptick in challenges. Um, I'll walk us through the Illinois and New Jersey cases briefly, uh, just to give a feel for what is what is out there and uh, in terms of, of the standards and, and, and what these hospitals must meet. And that, that target has moved, I think, over the years. But if we look at Illinois, and many on the call may be familiar with the Provena case from 2002, the statute in Illinois at that time, or it was actually a, a Supreme Court or a, a, a constitutional provision, uh, was, was fairly broad. Um, and, and it was further sort of refined in a, a landmark case, the Methodist Old People's Home versus Corzin case. But Ultimately, the, some of the factors that the court and the, and the municipalities look at are, are fairly common or fairly straightforward. Does the entity have capital stock? Does it have shareholders? Um, does it earn profits or dividends? Uh, or, or, or is it really dispensing charity to all who need it? And, and 
um, as we will see in some of the states where we've tracked this, that is, is oftentimes one of the hardest prongs to meet, is proving that a healthcare entity that, that garners most of its income from fee-for-service could truly be providing charity. Um, the, the Provena case really turned on, on that analysis and whether or not there was any sort of private inurement, um, the, uh, you know, being a fee-for-service entity. Um, the, the New Jersey case, I think, follows similar lines. New Jersey statute basically has three prongs. Is the owner organized exclusively for an exempt purpose? Is the property actually and exclusively used for a tax-exempt purpose? And does the operation and use of the property, or is it conducted at all for profit? So on its face, it's a fairly easy test, but the, uh, the Morristown case, which came down in uh, 2015, I believe, um, is, is kind of a classic example of a municipality saying, look, we recognize that uh, you do provide some charity care, but at the end of the day, you really look a lot more like a for-profit entity than a nonprofit, and uh, I won't get into to the details of that case. But that was essentially the, the court's argument. Um, in both of those states, there have been subsequent, um, both legislative and case law um, challenges. I mean, th those cases continue, whether under those names or under other parties' names, in various municipalities in those states, and. Uh, Mark, I, I was hoping that you could provide some background as well on the Michigan <clears throat> case. I know that, that the that have been coming down for about the past 12 years now um, and has, has kind of um, changed the face of, of the Michigan property tax landscape. Yes. Uh, the Michigan property tax exemption statutes for real and personal property are uh, quite old, uh, in the early 1980s. So from the early 80s, through 2006, there was a long line of cases in Michigan at the Court of Appeals level and the Michigan Supreme Court level, which used all different types of analysis to determine whether or not a tax-exempt entity was entitled to a property tax exemption without much rhyme or reason. <clears throat> and the courts would rely on various very old cases, some of them going back to the 1800s, to try to analyze whether a charitable exemption was really warranted. And then in 2006, the Michigan Supreme Court came up with the Wexford Medical Group versus City of Cadillac um, case, which was, which was a tax appeal brought by a nonprofit 501c3 medical group on their clinic. And the physician group actually won their case before the Supreme Court, uh, which had overturned the lower level courts in granting the exemption. And Wexford came up with a fairly complex six-factor test to determine in Michigan whether or not you're entitled to a property tax exemption. The good news is for property practitioners in Michigan, the Wexford case is still valid law, the six-factor test is still valid, and there's been a, a, quite a bit of case law built up under Wexford to help the, uh, you know, the taxpayer navigate these tax exemption appeals. Uh, and then in 2017, uh, there, there was the Baruch case, and that, both of these cases are referenced with their sites in the article that, that we'll send you later on today. But Baruch upheld the Wexford case, upheld the six-factor Wexford test, and it even added a little bit more guidance to navigating the six factors. So in Michigan, 
the, the case law is fairly well settled. Uh, since 2006, we can rely on the Wexford case as long as you can, as long as you can satisfy the six factors of Wexford. Uh, and uh, you know the problem is when you have six, and you have to satisfy all six of those factors. The problem is if you fail one of the six factors, you fail the entire tax exemption analysis. So, uh, but for the most part, nonprofit hospitals, physician groups, uh, and other nonprofit 501c3 healthcare providers will qualify under Wexford, no matter how hard the municipalities fight back. Um, and there's been some good cases that have come out in the last two years uh, in the Michigan Tax Tribunal and the Michigan Higher Courts, which ratify that, validate that, that theory. So with that, um, Joel, I'm going to ask you, you know, we've been, um, yeah, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the state tax initiatives uh, against tax exempt entities. Yeah, well, thanks, Mark. So, so yeah, we've talked now about some of the case law, but there are also <clears throat> legislative initiatives in a number of states. Um, I'll just highlight two of them here, the, uh, the because I think they're fairly unique. The Connecticut case, there there is a, a, a some legislation that was proposed in Connecticut in 2015, and the purpose of of the bill is very targeted. It it, it said. It was designed to preserve municipal tax bases by allowing municipalities to tax any real and personal property acquired after a certain date by private nonprofit institutions of higher learning, so we get universities in there, nonprofit general hospital facilities, freestanding chronic disease hospitals, and certain urgent care facilities. So really targeted, obviously there's universities, but, but really targeted primarily at, at healthcare providers. Um, Fortunately, that bill uh, it has been bogged down, but uh, who knows where, where that will end up. Massachusetts is another one, and, I, and I'll, I'll highlight Massachusetts and Montana kind of in tandem because they are, are very similar. But in Massachusetts, um, a, a bill would allow towns to charge nonprofit organizations who pay their five highest earning employees uh, more than a cumulative $2.5 million they would then charge the entity 50% of what the tax burden would be had the entity not been exempt at all. Um, so it's a pretty steep price to pay. And not only that, but they would also, those organizations would also be subject to property tax on new property on sort of a sliding scale um, that starts at about 25% of the total tax liability. Again, that's tax liability had they been a non-exempt entity. Um, the, Montana case or the Montana bill was also very similar. That was introduced in February of last year, and that would have revoked the property tax exemption of certain organizations if the organization paid any current or former officer or director more than $250,000 in a calendar year. So the, the bar for that was even lower than in the Massachusetts case. Fortunately, again, that one um, has the, the bill is currently has, has died. Uh, but the, uh, you know, who knows what 2018 will bring. Um, so, Mark, for the next segment, I was hoping that we could look at what are some of the specific arguments that the municipalities make in challenging a charitable property tax exemption. Yes. And the first I wanted to talk about is sort of this excess compensation argument. And again, that, you know, this kind of came up in Massachusetts and Montana. Uh, but the argument is essentially, you know, you are paying your um, high-ranking 
you know, your C-suite or, or others, uh, including physicians, of course, very high salaries. And in doing so, you're really not behaving like a charity and, and maybe even violating your private inurement prohibition that's mandated under Section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code. Um, I mean, how do you how do you combat that? Yeah. Well, I want to point out, Joel, that, that that argument that you just discussed it was actually made by a recent municipality in a tax appeal uh, that we uh, we pursued and we we ultimately won. But they really tried to paint the organization as a, uh, as a country club for wealthy physicians driving around in expensive cars, living a high lifestyle and overcharging their patients. Uh, that was their, the, the way they tried to portray our entity. Uh, and so, you know, one of the best ways that you can combat that argument is to show through, you know, credible objective studies <clears throat> that your physicians and other highly paid people are not overpaid compared to market. Uh, and many uh, large healthcare systems will include detailed uh, salary compensation surveys, uh, in, you know, in their annual financial planning, and they many times publish them right inside the uh, IRS Form 90, 990 that's, you know, made available to the public. So I think that's the best way to combat that argument that you're overpaying your people and not acting like a charity, is show that even though some of these people are very well paid, they're not overpaid by market standards. So another argument we've seen is sort of the ACA argument, and the way that that usually runs is the municipality says, look, the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, instituted an individual mandate, and it made insurance more accessible to more people. Um, do we really need charity care? Is there such thing as charity care when everyone's insured? Um, I mean, Mark, I'm interested in your thoughts. I, I see it, you know, we, we combat this in a couple of ways, but one is we say, look, a lot of these plans um, in reality are very high deductible. They may be, uh, you know, they may be a low monthly premium, but the, the deductible is very high. And so if, there, if someone is hit with a large medical bill that is unexpected, um, they oftentimes can't pay. And in that case, the hospital, will step in under its charity care policy and provide that care, uh, will not end up being, you know, being compensated for that care. Um, any thoughts on that? Yes, there are some credible statistics that show that since the ACA was enacted, <clears throat> that the number of uninsured individuals has gone down actually in the United States. So in that, in that respect, it was a success. However, the, the need for and the dollar amount of charity care has not gone down. We spend a fair amount of time looking at the financial statements and tax returns of nonprofit health institutions, and there's a tremendous amount of charity care uh, that, that's given out. And one thing, uh, one element of charity care that's not always considered is the, the what they call the Medicare and the Medicare, Medicaid gap, okay? And that's the difference between what uh, it costs a healthcare provider to deliver a Medicare or a Medicaid service and what they actually get reimbursed for. In many cases, it's a loss on every procedure. And most state courts will allow you to count that shortfall as a charity care item. And it's often a very significant portion of a healthcare provider's overall health, uh, charitable care dollars. Yeah, and Mark, I think that you raise a good point. Um, and I think one thing that, that kind of strikes me about that argument as well is that um, you know, if, if you're a hospital or a healthcare system that files a, a 990, under 501R, um, you know, you may not be able to use that Medicare, Medicaid shortfall 
for calculating your uh, charitable benefit that you've provided to the community, but at the municipal level and the state level, you can. And so, That's right. They're kind of different different terms. The whole overall community benefit that a charity provides is different uh, than the amount of charity care that they may provide to the actual patient. So, uh, one other thing I would point out too, Mark, is you know the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was passed and signed into law late last year eliminated the individual mandate. So I think this even further kind of dilutes the municipality's argument here. Um, the next argument that we see a lot is that it's kind of this discrimination argument. And you, you brought it up in, in kind of the Wexford decision and its progeny in Michigan, and we've seen it elsewhere. And basically the argument is, you know, you have the same service or the same type of surgery, let's say, being provided in, it could be the same hospital even, to different patients and you're, provide, you're, you're, you're charging them a different rate based on their payer status. Um, and, and in doing so, you're really discriminating. Um, I mean, to me, we say, look, the, the hospital here has no choice but to work within the framework that the government and the insurance industry have set up. Um, I think it also would be important for the hospital and, or the health system to be able to show really not charging exorbitant fees. We are really just charging enough to kind of stay afloat. Mm -hmm. I mean, any thoughts on that, Mark? Well, yeah, I mean, the healthcare provider generally charges the same fee for the service regardless of, you know, the user and their insurance situation. But the reality is, is that the patient, depending on their situation, will pay a different amount depending on their situation, whether or not they have the best insurance, not very good insurance, ACA insurance, no insurance, whether or not they're indigent. So that's the, the municipalities will focus on that and try to argue that the healthcare provider is discriminating because the, the amount that patients actually pay out of their own pocket can be different. Uh, but there's no way to overcome that. That's just the complexities of the healthcare industry and the reimbursement industry. It, it's not a very strong argument, but the providers are trying to make it. So far, I haven't seen them get much traction out of it. So another argument we see a lot of is the sort of organizational documents and, um, and whether those documents actually tend to show that the organization itself is organized and operated in a charitable manner. Um, and this one to me seems very easy to combat by being proactive and, and taking a look at your articles and your bylaws to make sure that, you know, there's nothing in there that can be misconstrued, especially by a layperson who might be reviewing these, who's not a tax attorney or not a, not a, a nonprofit, um, you know, expert. Um, and, 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 and simply to show that the sole purpose of this organization is to be operated for charitable purposes. Um, one other argument, Mark, that I think would be interesting to explore is the sort of the public policy argument. Um, you know, we, we represent hospitals all, all over the country. Some are in big cities, some are in small rural areas where that hospital building may be the nicest building in, in, in the city. Um, and all of that is despite the fact that the government or the municipal, uh, you know, the funds in, in that municipality are, uh, you know, are, are, the government is sort of failing, the schools are underfunded, et cetera. Uh, and they look at that hospital and they say, look, we know that you can provide more, you could, you could be sort of paying your fair share. Um, Mark, I mean, how do you combat that? I, I think, yeah, go ahead. It seems to come up in more and more of our appeals 
and it's, it's, it is a very appealing emotional argument that why should we give an exemption to that beautiful, shining building on the hill there that's, uh, that employs you know, several hundred very well-paid people uh, and, and generates a lot of money. Um, when the schools are starved, we're cutting back on school lunch programs, we had to lay off a police officer and a fire uh, chief and that type of thing. Uh, while emotionally compelling, uh, the argument really doesn't have much legal basis, you know, and fortunately, in the lawsuits that I've seen, the courts have not relied on that. They haven't taken the bait uh, that it's just not fair, you know, and, and uh, there's no rule, there's no requirement in the IRS rules and in most state statutes that say that uh, a healthcare enterprise has to be poor <laughs> in order to, uh, you know, or failing financially in order to, to um, be entitled to a property tax exemption. So Mark, I, I want to spend the rest of our time just talking about your experience litigating these appeals. Um, what have you learned? I mean, I, I'm sure you've got a lot of tips that you could share with our listeners. Yes, thanks. I'm going to try to um, give some very practical tips that have been learned over 25 plus years of trial and error, personal experience, et cetera, because I believe this is the kind of stuff you just can't really get in, in most places. Um, so tip number one. Uh, you know, request your exemption as soon as possible. You know, if, if possible, do it before your client acquires the property, definitely before they plan to build on it. Uh, too many times the, the hospital system or the tax-exempt physician group thinks, oh, well, we're entitled to the tax exemption, it'll be a slam dunk, let's just, you know, acquire the property and then we'll go talk to the city. Uh, I think that's a big mistake. You use your leverage when you can, which is before you make any big moves. Uh, tip number two, treat the tax appeal like a very important trial. You know, obviously, depending on the dollar amount. I mean, if it's a, uh, a $200 a year property tax bill that the small building is going to generate, you know, that's not well, worth spending a lot of money on. But some of these very large healthcare complexes uh, would be subject to a huge amount of real and personal property taxes, and thus they they um, require and they're entitled to a very large uh, amount of resources. I mean. Don't leave a stone unturned, um, you know, and, and when you extrapolate the tax savings from a tax exemption on a pretty expensive property out over 5, 10, or 20 years, uh, it can be very, you know, very uh, beneficial. You know, there's a lot of money at stake. Um, tip number three, compile and use the taxpayer's best evidence to, to help pursue your case. Uh, invariably, in these complex tax appeals, the municipality is going to issue interrogatories or other written discovery requests, asking questions about all different facets of the real estate and the personal property. Rather than object to these, these requests and to try to defer them and, and avoid them, it can be very beneficial to work with your client to really get the information, mine the information that shows that you're really a tax-exempt enterprise and what's going on at the facility. And then you can use that later in your pleadings and in your motions and arguments. Um, the instinct is, is to, you know, uh, defend, deflect, object to discovery requests. But I have found that if you spend the resources up front and have the client work and pull all the information together, most of that information will be very valuable to you later when you get to the higher levels of your appeal. <coughs> Excuse me. One uh, very important uh, tool in a property tax appeal are affidavits. Sometimes they're not considered. But in many cases, um, if you get some very good comprehensive affidavits of the people that really understand the property, uh, perhaps the property manager 
or the chief medical director for the facility, and they talk about the actual charitable work that happens at the site and how they base their salaries and how they charge their fees. That is the best evidence to present to the, the trier fact um, to present to prove your case. And if the municipality can't counter with an equally credible and compelling affidavit, you're gonna, you're gonna trump them on very important evidence. So the use of affidavits can be very useful, very valuable uh, in a property tax appeal, and it's an, a tool that's many times overlooked. Uh, another excellent uh, tool is use very good visual aids. If, if it's a very pleasant, clean looking facility, make sure you have a big, beautiful color picture uh, rendition of that to show to the judge or the, you know, the taxing uh, finder of fact. Don't be ashamed of the, of the property if, and its architecture because it can have a very compelling visual image that's useful to your case. Keep it simple, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, like maybe one big picture of the facility to dispel any myths that it's really just a printing press for physicians' uh, you know, money. And very important, before actually going to hearings, make, make sure you know what's going on at the property that you're, you're arguing over. Take a drive by it. If it's too far away, have somebody check it out for you because if uh, the trier fact asks you a specific question, uh, for instance, what's that big mobile MRI unit doing park right in the middle of the parking lot? Is that normal? You want to know the answer to those questions to give the impression uh, that you are on top of this appeal. Uh, another tip is, is to you know, look at the taxpayers' Form 990s and even their 1023 for when they apply for 501c3 status. There can be information in there that's very valuable to your arguments that, that your client is truly entitled to a tax exemption under the applicable law. Uh, sometimes these IRS forms will include uh, their community benefit information and initiatives, will uh, specifically reference salary compensation studies to demonstrate that highly paid individuals are really are reasonably compensated by market standards. Uh, and there's other very good information in those documents that it's right there, it's already done. and can really help your appeal. And then finally, when you're facing a municipality that's throwing out every bit of ammunition they can to argue that your tax exempt nonprofit charity uh, is really uh, a greedy, uh, unfair organization that shouldn't get a tax exemption. There's lots of scholarly articles and US government studies that can talk about uh, issues of, of facing healthcare these days that help rebut municipal arguments. Um, we could talk for half an hour just on that one point, but there really are. If the township makes a, uh, an argument against your, your client, many times you can find some good information that. Uh, that our tax dollars paid for to rebut their argument. For instance, the ACA has somehow eliminated the, the need for charity care uh, across the United States. Well, thanks, Mark. Um, these are really invaluable insights. Uh, and thank you all for listening today. Uh, we've reached the end of our time, and we did have some questions that we didn't get to, so we will reach out to you directly if you submitted a question. But if you, if you haven't yet, uh, feel free to, to email Mark or give us a call directly. Either of us uh, would, be would be glad to, uh, to answer questions. Uh, so thank you for your time and have a great afternoon.